This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for their kind words and bringing us through the 11 o'clock. We've got an hour of science now for you. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm well. Exciting uh, weather outside. Oh, there's some beautiful clouds, indeed. Yeah, it's all good. And Dr. Lauren, your last show it for quite a while. It is my last show. I, I just got yep. a little bit weepy oh, with no, the theme song. Cheering up, cheering up. <laughs> yes, yes. No, but I, I will still be phoning in, I assume, yeah, yeah. every week yeah, we might for the even, whole show. Might even answer <laughs> the phone. Uh, we've got some special stuff for you later, folks, on uh, Dr. Lauren. I went through the archives and, jeez, I think she's said some stuff over the years. But uh, anyway, uh, some of it, um, well, I think most of the legal proceedings have already passed. <laughs> you should be right. Okay. Dr. Ray. Morning, Dr. Shane. You well? Uh, I am. I am. Friday. Did everyone duck figuratively? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because Florence Nightingale flew pretty close. 18 times the distance from the moon. This yeah, is a large cool. asteroid. Yeah, Last well, time it was this close was 1890. Oh, it won't be this close, close again for five centuries. But, oh, uh, well, don't have to duck for a while. Then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Liv's back doing our Twitter feed. She was, I don't know, Fiji or something, were you? Yeah. Fiji? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Liv is uh, punching stuff out of the ray the knots, although she only does it when we says, say things that are important, so no tweets yet, eh, Liv? <laughs> In the studio with us now, though, is Professor Michael Fuhrer. He's the director of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence in Future Low Energy Electronics from Monash University. Michael, welcome to Triple R. Thanks. It's good to be here. Now, you're working in this area of low-energy electronics, which is something I suppose most people don't think about this, but how much of our sort of global energy use is taken up at the moment by consumer electronic products and, and the like? So the surprising thing is that it's uh, it's about 5% of the electricity around the globe. It's uh, as much as 10% in uh, in the United States. So it's And it's something that's really growing where a lot of uh, sectors, the electricity use is going down, but this one's really going up quite mm. fast. Is that sort of um, just devices and stuff or, or telecommunications as well or both? Yeah, that includes all of the uh, communications and uh, the information communications technology, but a lot of it is uh, is is computing. Uh, so it's actually uh, running programs, uh, running applications, mm-hmm. uh, doing doing computations. And and the interesting thing is that a lot of that now uh, occurs where we don't see it. So it's not right. in our devices, but it's out in the cloud. Mm. And so it's in a server farm somewhere, and those server farms are using a lot of energy. Yeah, for aircon, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Well, some of it's aircon, <laughs> aircon, so that you need to keep them cool, and yeah. you need to just you know. Power those uh, computers that are that are crunching through the numbers. Are we better off with that that sort of large scale scenario than when we had everything in our our own offices and, and homes, or, have, or has it gotten worse with everything being uh, in the cloud? So there are gains in efficiency every year. So in some sense, we're better off. But the the thing that we have to realize is that every year we want a lot more computations mm. done. So it's about seventy percent. So every year on the planet, we do about seventy percent more uh, computations or computers calculating something, and th- it's getting more efficient. But we think that those efficiency gains are really going to end, and we're going to run out of steam uh, in in making silicon uh, transistors, the Mm. the kind of devices that we use now, better so they can compute more efficiently. And so that's a real problem. Mm. And and when we we get onto that that stuff, I mean, that's that's where your work is. What's 
what is causing all the the energy use? I mean, where is all the energy going? That's the part that I suppose a lot of people don't don't think about is when you when you turn your computer on or you turn one of these server farms on, a lot of energy is used. But to do what? Where's it going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it turns out there's a fundamental limit. Uh, so uh, there, it, when you when you throw a switch, uh, so computers are basically a bunch of switches and mm. billions of switches on a on a computer chip. But they're they're little electronic switches and they switch on and off. And every time you switch them on switch them off you have to you have to charge them up uh, and then you have to get rid of that uh, energy and so so there's some energy wasted there and it turns out there's a lot of energy that's wasted in in current that just runs through those uh, chips all the time uh, and it is is a sort of wasted uh, energy hmm. so dissipated as heat presumably yeah and it's dissipated as heat so yeah. uh, it comes out as heat and why haven't why haven't we sort of it seems to me unusual that you know when we can we can send probes across the solar system that simply operate on heat from nuclear decay you know, mm. to generate electricity. We have all this heat just coming out of these devices nonstop. And you know, if you ever put your laptop actually on your lap, and I know people don't generally do that, um, you feel that heat. I mean, why don't we utilize that loss in some way? You can. You can get some of that energy back. You can't get it all, right? So thermodynamics mm. tells you you're not going to get everything back, but you can get some of it back. And that's something that I that it, that's um, we're looking at or we're, we're not looking at, but scientists are looking at, mm-hmm. um, and and so there are ways to get it, get some of that energy back, and that's uh, but you know it's only going to make things twenty percent more efficient, something like that. You can, mm-hmm. might get twenty percent back. Yeah. Now we're reaching this crunch point where we you know we want to do more, do it smaller, do it faster. What what are you guys working on to sort of get around that? Because presumably we're, we're it's a brick wall, right? I mean we can't just keep making these things smaller. At the yeah. Moment. So the the industry has really recognized this. The electronics industry they know they need. A really a, a new technology and not only that they know that uh, that technology is um, they don't know what it is right it's going to be something that's completely different than what we have now uh, I mean if you're an electrical engineer and you're going in uh, to uh, to learn about uh, electronics so you're going to be working you know during your career in something that's different than silicon uh, transistors and so mm. um, so it's an interesting time we don't know what the solution is. Uh, we have our ideas, and we have some pretty promising uh, ideas that we're working on. Uh, but w- but the idea is that we need to make a new kind of switch that can switch with lower energy uh, to replace silicon. Um, just uh, before we get into to your new kind of switch, I, I, there was a couple things I just wanted to ask about that I, th- I think I've seen in the industry now. So the limit is how closely you can space all these circuits on a, on a chip. Is, is one of the limits, although you're talking about an electrical one as well. Yeah, so, um, making the transistors smaller helps, right? So every, every year the transistors get a little smaller and we're, we're running out of room there. So, so the, they're, we're getting down to the bottom where we can't make them much smaller. But it's true that every year they get smaller and they get more efficient. And that's one of the roadblocks we're going to hit is that we can't make them any smaller. So, I mean, what I saw most recently, I think maybe it was at IBM is instead of, uh, computer transistors are made in a very two-dimensional pattern that they basically try to make them in a, a three-dimensional pattern by putting them on end and so they can stack them closer together. Maybe they were using nanowires. But but regardless, that might get them a little bit closer, but that still doesn't really address the energy challenges. Yeah, I mean, the, the best estimates are that when we get to the, uh, the end of what we can do with silicon transistors, that we'll still be about four orders of magnitude away, so about 10,000 times. 
uh, away from the fundamental limits that are set by the amount of energy you need to use uh, to flip a switch. And mm-hmm. and so so there is room there, uh, but uh, and we we think that silicon won't get there. We need something else. So so what what would that look like? I mean these these this entire technology is based really on sort of what. 40s, 50s stuff that uh, has just been built up, made smaller, made better, cleaner, faster. Yeah. But you're talking about uh, like literally a paradigm change, as in go back to basics and recreate that switching technology that's, from the ground up. What what does that look like? To yeah, you? that's exactly right. So we're looking at, uh, at at making a new switch, and we're, we have a couple approaches. Um, so uh, we're focused on ways that we can actually get electrons to to move through a material at room temperature with zero resistance mm. and and that helps part of the problem in that uh, if you have zero resistance you're not wasting any energy as heat and and so that's actually sounds it sounds pretty fantastic but mm. uh but there are a couple of concepts that have uh, come out recently in physics that tell us that, that we can do it um so one of the ways that we want to do that is to use topological materials so these are materials that are insulating uh, in their interior, but they conduct on their surfaces or their edges. And if they're very thin, they conduct along edges. And those edges uh, are just one-dimensional um, edges. So they're, they're kind of like little highways for the electrons where they can only go one direction and they don't mm-hmm. turn around. And so uh, they can conduct without resistance. And so... Um, that's great on the drawing board at the moment. Uh, it's only been shown at very low temperatures, but if we get the right materials, we think we can push it up to room temperature. And the idea then is to to make a kind of a switch where you switch on that topological effect uh, and you switch on this this uh, resistanceless conduction, and then you can turn it off. Mm. And, and so that's one way to do it. Mm. And what sort of materials do you think you'd be be trying on next? Would these be natural materials or something that you'd have to make in the lab? No, they're really going to be something new. So we, uh, they probably not something that occurs in nature so um in terms of the topological materials uh we, we're really looking at materials that are atomically thin so we want things that are um really two-dimensional uh and so so graphene is a good example of an atomically thin material this is something that's fairly new it's one atom thick uh, carbon uh it's not a topological insulator so in order to make a topological insulator we actually need heavy elements and so we need things like uh like bismuth so so atomically thin bismuth would be fantastic. So that's one of the things we're trying to make. What, one of the things I always found whenever you look at these new approaches is the materials themselves to do the, the circuitry, you know, are hard enough. But then the endpoints, the connectors, always seem to be where these things fall down. I mean, how how is that work going? I mean, because it seems as though if you remove all the resistance from the actual the switch itself, but then there's a huge resistance either side of it, you kind of you kind of lost the game. I mean, is that is that a big problem that you have to overcome? It, it'll certainly be a problem. I mean, this is the reason that we actually have to to do this kind of research. I mean, mm-hmm. otherwise, uh, you know, you wouldn't need a research program. So, so we're you know we're we're doing very basic. Basic research. We're you know at the, we're starting at the point where we don't even really have the materials we need, and we're trying to figure out how to make them. But yeah, once we make those materials, we got to figure out how to make contacts to them so that that are efficient that get the electrons in and out. Just as you said, we have to figure out how to fabricate devices. And so so at the it's a seven year program that, mm-hmm. that we have that's just starting, and yep. and uh, which is great because we have seven years really to work out all these issues. It'll go fast. <laughs> so you're mentioning, obviously, these are quite novel materials that you have to make. I'm assuming that scale is going to be an issue. So when you start to produce these new materials, how much do you think you'll actually get? 
Yeah, I mean, we're looking at things that we can make in, in, in thin films that we think we could make, uh, on the wafer scale, right? So, so, uh, computer chips are made on, uh, on these silicon wafers so that they're, they're planar. They're made across very large areas these days. They make the 300 millimeter wafers, like dinner plates. Um, and so we, you know, we do want to look at things that we can make like that. I, I think, you know, right now we'd be happy with making anything. <laughs> so we can't necessarily scale it, but, uh, but it's certainly a concern. And Michael, just finally on the the center itself, um, it's it's just started a few few months back. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. right. Are you still recruiting? Is it how big is it going to be? Yeah, I mean it's uh, we have uh, nineteen investigators at six universities across uh, Australia. It's um, and and we are recruiting. Um, uh, we're looking for students and and postdocs uh, uh, to come work with us. So there's there's still positions to fill. Uh, I think it's really exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. So if any any students out there who are interested in electrical engineering physics material science, uh, you know, come talk to us. Sounds great. Professor Michael Fuhrer, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today, and uh, good luck with the next seven years. Yeah, okay, thanks for having me. Professor Michael Fuhrer is Director of the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence in Future Low Energy Electronics at Monash University, and importantly, they're recruiting folks, so uh, have a look at their website and see if you can uh, slot yourself in, because it's an important area and one that hopefully, if it goes well, will be a big industry for Australia. You're listening to 3 We're going to take a break, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking about geothermal energy. Three. Triple. You are listening to Triple R. In the studio with us now is Golomo Nasilio and Asal Bamatitz. I, I butchered that, didn't I, Asal? <laughs> Very sorry. Okay. Uh, they're both from the Melbourne School of Engineering at University of Melbourne, and, and we're going to talk about the, the Metro Rail Tunnel and what we can do there. Um, Golomo, I might start with you. First of all, um, tell us just a bit about that project. What, what, what's going on with the Metro Rail, in, just in terms of its position, location, underground, and so forth? Good. Um, so good morning. I'll, the Melbourne Metro project is one of the largest infrastructure projects in, in the country at the moment. Mm. It's the largest infrastructure project in Victoria. It, it com- comprises nine kilometers of new tunnels going through the city, basically, yep. and the construction of five more underground train stations. Right. Yep. Uh, so that's, that's the big picture. Mm. Um, and it's a project that is going to cost about $11 billion. It's going to generate number of jobs. And it's going to disrupt the city for a while, oh, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but the, the, uh, the outcome will be probably for, for the greater good of, of the whole society. Yeah. Uh, so that's what Melbourne Metro Project is, is all about. And the, the government and the Melbourne Metro Rail Authority have a, have a good um, understanding of innovation and, and sustainability concepts, and they are trying to explore new concepts to be applied. Mm. within the project. Mm. It's a great opportunity to try a few yeah. things. So just just thinking about the the train tunnels themselves, I mean, how how deep underground are they? Uh, okay, um, those are details that I am not too aware yeah. of, but uh, some of the stations, um, well, the some stations of the ground stations will yeah. go uh, 40, 30 metres okay. uh, below the ground surface, All right. and there will be parts of the tunnels that will go shallower or deeper than that, depending on where you are, depending mm. on the geology of their where they're passing through. Yeah. It all depends on the ground conditions, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you, I mean, this is maybe outside of your area, but do you guys know much about the geology of, of where they're tunneling through? I mean, do they know what the geology is like or are they just going to start digging? How much do they know? They, they know a lot, quite a, a great deal. They have spent, um, invested um, mm-hmm. millions of dollars in doing what we call a geotechnical site investigations mm-hmm. to characterize the underground uh, 
well so they can save in the construction. So these tunnels are going through very competent rock in the eastern mm. part, for example, the Silurian Maston, very good rock, basically, uh, all the way through very soft, gooey uh, uh, soils. soils. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there is a variety. It's very... Um, it, it's very challenging for, for our profession, geotechnical engineering, to, to, you know, to do yeah. this through the whole city, from hard rock to very gooey, soft soils. Yeah. yeah. Now, so I might start now talking with you about the, the geothermal elements. I mean, what, what do you expect to find at a depth of 40 metres in terms of temperature and so forth? Because I, I suspect some people have this idea that you can only do geothermal where, you know, if, if I'm not seeing a, you know, a, a hydrothermal vent, you know, shooting out in California or in Iceland or something, I can't do it. But but what's special about the, the sort of temperature range you get around 30, 40 metres or even 5 metres? Yeah, so the whole idea about um, behind geothermal is that um, deeper than 5 to 10 metres here in um, in Melbourne at least, um, you get to a constant temperature throughout the year. Mm-hmm. So this is where you can um, use the thermal energy from the ground for heating and cooling. So when you have a hot day in summer, which is maybe 30, 40 degrees, you will have 18, 19 degrees constant deeper than 10 metres below the surface. Right. Um, so you can easily uh, reject the heat from your building to the ground and the, the reverse happens in winter that you can extract it when you have a five degree day in Melbourne. So that is how geothermal works. So it doesn't need to be kilometers below the surface. Mm. Um, we mm. typically do 50 meter long boreholes or um, if we want to use boreholes. So yeah. It's, it's it amazing we don't all live underground. I mean, it's perfect, you know, 18, 19 degrees is kind of perfect temperature for us in a way. Well, some people like it a bit warmer. Dr. Linden? Um, and is that is that something that's special about Melbourne or is that because I had heard that there was some geothermal research happening in South Australia, but is Melbourne the better place for this or are you guys just taking advantage of the fact that these tunnels are being built already? Uh, no, it doesn't have much to do with Melbourne. So this technology, if we call it geothermal technology, is applicable to any climate. Um, it works better in some climate when, when you have a, a balanced heating and cooling demand. So you don't heat up much the ground or you don't um, cool it down. Um, but it's definitely applicable to any um, um, weather condition. Mm. Mm. And how would you go about, so it, let's, let's say, for example, we were just talking about a house, you know, someone's home. How would you, because you don't, you're not talking about very deep here, and I suspect this is presumably why people have wine cellars under, underground. You know, they don't have to do anything, they just build them underground and leave them be. But how deep would you have to go, and how, how would you utilize that? I mean, do you exchange fluids? Do you, how do you, how do you get the heat in and out? Yeah. So talking about a typical house in, in Melbourne, mm-hmm. say, um, we may need two to three, maybe. Just these are very rough numbers. I'm saying, um, 50 meter long boreholes in your backyard. Mm-hmm. How it works is that we're going to circulate fluid, which is most of the time water, through um, plastic pipes, yep. um, high density uh, polyethylene pipes. Um, and if that's a summer day, you're going to take the heat from the ground, from the house, and then dump it into the ground because you have a cooler temperature mm. below 10 meter, 10, deeper than 10 meter below the surface. And the reverse works in winter. So you take the heat from the ground and mm-hmm. then transfer it to the house. And it's free. And, and it's free. And, and it's, free. it's green. <laughs> yeah. And it's sustainable. Yeah, so yeah, what yeah. else do you want? So there is... 
you can imagine some concern about the idea of putting more heat somewhere. We don't love doing it in the atmosphere. So is there an issue that putting extra heat or putting extra cool uh, in the ground can have adverse effects? Ah, answer that. Um, no, that, that's what we engineers come into play. Your thermal design comes into play to ensure that you don't overheat or overcool your ground. Uh, uh, it's all come down to how many meters or kilometers in some cases of pipe you embed in the ground. You, you design that length in such a way that you are not overheating or overcooling the ground. Mm. So um, every heat exchanger I'm familiar with um, generally needs to pump fluids from one place to another. So while we've described the energy cost as free, I guess the, the, the heat sink is free, but how does the the pumping cost of pushing this this fluid so far down and back up, that's a, that's a bit larger than pumping cost within a house. So how does the pumping cost compare to the energy sustainability? So so there are a few answers to that question. Uh, you need two things. You need a circulation pump, and in this closed-loop system where you have the pipes, you need to circulate water through them. The circulation pumps uh, in this closed-loop um, uh, consume very little energy. Uh, and then the other pump that you need is a ground source heat pump. So that heat pump also consumes electricity. But typically for every one kilowatt of electricity consumed, you get four to five kilowatt, kilowatts of thermal energy. So the heat pump takes care of upgrading the heat. It's not just 18 degrees being blown into your home. Um, you need hmm. domestic hot water at much higher temperatures or uh, heating at much higher temperatures to get their comfortable temperature in hand to hands for, for heating. So there are costs of circulation pumps, which is very minor, and there is a cost for running the heat pump itself. That ratio, one kilowatt of electricity to four to five thermal energy. Mm. Now, let's talk about the metro rail scenario, because this is where the, the sort of interest for you guys is. There, there's, there's a whole other guys out there and girls in, in yellow jackets. I've seen them. They're right outside my building. It's very hard to get into my building at the moment. And they're going to start digging holes. I mean, what does that allow you to do? Because we don't really have a big geothermal energy industry in Victoria or Australia full stop. So what does this sort of allow us to do? While all this stuff's going on, can we, can we build some things? Can we do some stuff? That's the main idea. Mm. Um, we are digging here, or the, the government is doing it, with yep. a consortium. Uh, and uh, they are digging. That's the highest cost of energy thermal system, digging or mm. drilling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they are digging for the purpose of building the tunnels or building the underground train stations. Why don't we just use that and just embed some pipe into the retaining walls of the tunnels or the basement, uh, the, the slab of the base, and uh, to transform them not just to be a retaining wall or a slab, but a energy wall or an yep. energy slab. Um, so that, that's the main thought. We have elements that are already in contact with the ground. Drilling costs are already in culture. Let us utilize it with a double purpose, a structural as well as thermal. So are we, are we talking here about something that's essentially turning this, this entire project into something of a laboratory or actual practical use for heating and cooling the stations and the, and the, the train line itself? I mean, where, where are we at? That's all. So, um, yeah, what we, um, what we thinking of is that uh, we can really use these slabs and these, um, 
returning walls to heat and cool the stations. Mm. So um, practically use them for definitely cooling the stations, maybe not 100% of the cooling demand, and also heat them up in um, in winter time. This is what we did a feasibility study on. Mm. And, and are the state government interested at the moment in doing this? Because, I mean, these projects, are they're complicated. They're very complicated. And if you have a third party coming in and wanting to do things, usually there's a degree of resistance. How is How is that process going? It has taken yeah. a while. It, 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 no, it has taken a while. We started a conversation with the state government almost a year ago. And, and uh, again, they're very open to new ideas, mm. but they also have to be practical. Mm. And it mm. had to be, well, they're obviously risk adverse. And our industry, the construction industry, is, is very risk adverse. But we have uh, contact with the Ellie Works uh, consortium, um, John Hall and KBR, and, and the new consortium in charge of the big construction, Len Lees and John Holland again, among others. And they're very open to the idea. So it's, it's answering your question, your previous question. This is going to be hopefully for real, mm. uh, very applied. Now, if we cannot do it large scale, we as researchers will be also happy yeah. to get, you know, more knowledge about how this system yeah, works. And yeah. it will be uh, Australia first for sure. Um, perhaps one of the first in the world too. There are people from Europe um, and North America that are very closely following what we at the University of Melbourne and our group is doing mm. because this is a quite unique opportunity. Um, mm. So they're considering for 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 real. Yeah, well, let's hope they do. I mean, they're, they're not digging an insignificant amount of of area here. So you know, even even just the station blocks, you know, the cut and fill stuff. There's there's a huge amount of of opportunity there because they're deep. They're like forty, fifty meters. There's heaps you can do there. Yeah, so um, with that, I was just really interested in, um, yeah, I think you've kind of alluded to it, other countries are already doing this. So if there's other big infrastructure projects around the world, have other engineers actually been able to implement this sort of technology before? Yes, yeah, so there are a few trials in, in Germany. Um, this is more, much more widespread in, in Switzerland. Um, in London, Crossrail has considered this very seriously. I had, they have embedded the pipes, uh, not for using it, to cool or heat the station themselves, but to sell this thermal energy to mm. third parties. Now, you don't do that in all throughout the, the tunnels or the, or the station. You just do it that where you will have some off-takers. For the case of Merrill Metro Project, uh, Parville is in a great position. The station uh, there have the University of Melbourne next door, the hospitals. Uh, they can consume, they can buy off mm. uh, the thermal energy that is generated from these thermal structures. Well, look, it's a it's an immense project, as you say, over eleven billion dollars. Surely they could throw another half a billion your way or something. I don't know, um, and actually make this happen. But it, it's a great opportunity. So I hope it's successful. I hope you you manage to get some of these um, features into these stations and the various tunnels and and manage to generate some thermal geothermal energy because it, it would um, it would be something that we could showcase around the world. And, and obviously, there's a lot of interest in these technologies around the world. So Good luck. Thanks for coming in, and uh, we hope to see these things uh, clicking over some some juice for us in the near future. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We're going to take a break, folks, for some music, and we'll be back in uh, in just a moment. Uh, we have another important interview uh, coming up, which uh, you may have heard before if you've been a long time listener of the show. You're listening to Three Triple R. Three Triple R. Uh, we're 
we're back. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo, folks. Now, uh, I should mention that uh, if you haven't yet uh, subscribed for this year's Radiothon, you can still do it. There's a few weeks to go, and if you do it before the 20th of September which is a Wednesday out of interest, uh, you can still go into the draw for all of the prizes that we were spruiking so much during the Radiothon period. So if you want to do that and support AAA, you can still do it. Just go to the website, rrr.org.au, and it'll cost you 75 clams, and it would help us immensely. Now, uh, we're going to play an interview in a minute. It's very important. It's a pre-recorded interview, which, uh, well, actually it was live at the time, but... Uh, this was uh, the first interview we ever did with Dr. Lauren because um, for those of you who are not aware, we are sick and tired of her. We're getting rid of her <laughs> and we're sending her to the US. Lauren, where, just tell us quickly, where are you going? Uh, are you yeah, going? I've been evicted from Australia. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. um, so I'm going over to work with a group um, in, in the US working on a bionic eye over there. So um, working with guys from Harvard University and Cornell University. So I'll be mm. over there for a couple of years getting them ready for their clinical trials. So mm. they've got a, another new bionic eye device over there. And so it's incredibly mm. exciting. Um, now, I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't heard of those universities, but I'm sure they're okay. <laughs> um, they're okay. They're, they're right. okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, so what, there's a whole lot of things that Lauren said over the last uh, <laughs> five, six years. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you started in 2012, I yeah, worked out. I did. And there's a whole range of them that I could collect together into a compilation and make you look really bad. Mm-hmm. Pretty much every show I've ever done, yeah, you there's could always something. something. There's always yeah. something. Um, but I thought instead of doing that, we would play... Um, the first interview that you did with us, um, so people can hear it, because this was all about your PhD work, which is, and, and other things, which mm-hmm. was really, for me, it was a, every question I've ever, ever had for someone who's an eye specialist, I basically asked you during this interview. Yeah. And the first half of the interview was me just getting those questions off my, off my chest. <laughs> and the second half was you talking about the bionic eye. Mm-hmm. So we're going to play the first half for people because I think it, it really answers a lot of questions and, and hopefully five years, six years later, it's still true. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe the research has moved on. And as a non-eye specialist, I couldn't tell. So um, I'm sure it was good. But I thought it would be interesting for people to know why we picked you because sometimes it's very hard to get really good hosts into the show. And over the years, I have spent many, many a long night trying to work out where and who we could get. And we've managed to get a fantastic team together. But this was the interview that got you a gig on the show. So I thought we'd we'd play it for people so they could hear it if they didn't hear it the first time round. So uh, try not to be too disturbed listening to yourself, I, I, Dr. I will try not to groan too much as I listen. All right. <laughs> here we go, folks. I'm going to try not to listen to myself because I've changed a lot in six years too. <laughs> but here we go. By Dr. Lauren Ayton, who is from the Centre for Eye Research Australia and also from the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Shane. Now, you, I mean, we we got you in here because you asked me to do a a favor for you and whenever a researcher does that i make them assuming they have a personality <laughs> gotta check that um i make them come in here and do an interview it's a fair deal i think i think it was a fair deal actually i think it was an unfair deal because i got to rock up to a movie theater at, like god knows what time mm-hmm. <laughs> one night of the week and it'll and, be a uh, wonderful event though shall it will. we'll talk about that before it um because it's a few weeks away but before it comes on we'll, we'll talk about that and so uh you agreed to came come on and you're i mean you're working in some amazing areas one of the things i want to talk to you first about though is your your phd because you worked on um pediatric optometry which just sounds cool in itself <laughs> but the effects of sort of 
eye movement abnormalities and stuff on kids and how they how they learn. Tell us a bit about that. Mm, for sure. So one of the things with paediatric optometry is that the eye movement system is very complicated and a lot of things can go wrong. So when a child is reading, for example, their eyes have to focus on the word, they have mm-hmm. to coordinate on the word, they have to move effectively between the words. And obviously there's a lot of steps that can go wrong. So what we wanted to look at is do these sort of clinical abnormalities affect a child's education and their ability to learn and i mean how do you go about determining that a child has this sort of problem it seems to me as though there's such a range in terms of kids and their learning capabilities and what they're good at you know some mm. kids are you know, my, my son's great at hitting a cricket ball mm. but he can't catch to save his life yep. um you know yeah. there's, there's there's always that range in kids i mean mm. how do you get kids in knowing that they they have these sorts of problems that's one of the biggest challenges really so obviously the equipment that i used for my research was very high tech so we had infrared eye cameras that could record where children were looking and all those things mm-hmm. They're very expensive, they're very complicated, they're not appropriate for clinical settings. So what we actually did was we did some comparisons looking at some of the optometry clinical tests that we use Mm -hmm. and then comparing them to these more advanced things. And then we sort of looked at the two to see whether or not we could predict these eye movement problems when their kid goes to get their eyes checked. Yeah. Now, after this, of course, you went on to work on how eye movements can be used to determine recovery from traumatic brain injury. I mean, talk about one cool thing to the next. But, uh, I, mean, <laughs> I read your bio during the week and thought, ooh, how come I never thought of doing that sort of yeah. research? I, mean, I think back, I got to use lasers, but beyond, you know, beyond that, and I know you did too, so I mean, you know, you kind of got me there too, but... Um, I mean, this this sounds really interesting because, mm. uh, I mean, how, how traumatic are you talking about here in these sorts of measurements? So we were actually looking more at the mild to moderate end. So mm-hmm. we were mainly looking at kids that, you know, fell off their bike or hit mm-hmm. a wall when they were skateboarding, those sorts of children. But what we were looking at is, is there some sort of simple test that you can do when a kid's in hospital that will then predict whether they're likely to recover with ease or whether there's going to be complications? Right. So what we were doing is following these children up over time and recording their eye movements at each time, but also doing tests to look at how they were developing cognitively as well yeah. and seeing if there were any deficiencies as they progressed. And, and what did you find there? I mean, can you, can you do that? Yeah, yeah. So the, it's still in progress. It's un, you know, Obviously, a longitudinal study mm. takes a lot of time, but it's looking really promising. So we think that there's some simple eye movement measurements that we can do straight after a child has a brain injury, and then that can tell us you know, how they're likely to progress and whether they need some extra interventions and help along the way. How much does the eye give you in terms of information about how the, the brain's functioning? I mean, I mean, you're really talking about, you know, there's like a low-key MRI scan in it, mm. you know, a functional MRI scan in a way where mm. you're, you're using the, the eye as a, I guess, a cheating way to mm. get information on the brain. Just how mm. much can you, is it just one portion of the brain you're looking at there? So the particular part that we're looking at is um, a type of eye movement that's called a saccade. So saccades are very quick eye movements. So they're the ones mm-hmm. that we make when we're looking at something that jumps out at us or when we're reading. And what we were looking at is how well children can make those, so how accurate they are when they're making these saccades. Mm. And so that's the main thing that we're finding it does link into sort of their, their development and their progress from their injury. Mm. But there's also things like, you know, how long it takes them to actually make an eye movement when something pops up at them. And so you're right, it's sort of, it is almost a bit of a cheat's way of predicting how some of these neural pathways are working. Mm. It, I mean, it seems, it, it seems amazing. I mean, you, you know, you are actually looking at 
at, at the function of the brain without looking at the brain, mm-hmm. which is kind mm-hmm. of cool. I mean, it's the sort of thing that any neurologist would do when they give you a neural exam. The, mm-hmm. You know, the last thing they do is look at the brain, but, mm-hmm. you know, to actually use it later on as a as a mechanism how well they're recovering, mm-hmm. I guess it's just a more complex version of what, what a neurologist would normally do in a standard mm-hmm. exam. The other really great thing with that, what, the study as well, is the eye tracker that we use is actually a bike helmet mounted system, mm-hmm. so it's actually lots of fun for the kids. So, yeah. you know, when a child had a, had a head injury and they're in hospital and it's scary and there's lots of different things going on, we're really happy that, you know, maybe there's a test that we can give them that's kind of fun. Can I know? just say, as someone who had an MRI this mm. week on my head, God, they, they couldn't believe the level of scientific brain they found. It was just, it was just amazing. Um, in fact, I was so shocked they put a contrast injection in and I have a whopping big bruise. Uh, to the, to the lady at St. Vincent's, great job on everything, but the injection, ouch. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, you know, I mean, and that is not an environment you want to put a kid in. No, I mean, I was in there, I was thinking of, you know, close your eyes, think of England kind of thing. I was just tr- trying my best to, to mm-hmm. not freak out because it is very loud. Mm. And it's very contained, you're very contained and, and I can't imagine putting a, a six or five year old or even younger in, in that sort of environment. Mm. You, you would have to sedate them, I, I think. So it, it'd be, I mean, just putting a helmet on as an alternative to some of these things would be, be phenomenal. Now, you, you also work in the area of macular degeneration. What, what does that mean? So that's where I'm working now. So macular degeneration is actually the leading cause of blindness in Australians over the age of 50. Mm-hmm. So it's a condition where the central vision is affected. And so people lose the ability to read and to recognize faces and those sorts of things. So it's okay. a really big problem. So what, what, I mean, what's happening? What's the macula? So the macula is where your central vision is. So it's just the name that we refer to a piece of the retina. So the retina is yep. like the film, the back of your eye, sort of like the film in a camera. And the macula You're showing your age. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's film in camera. I know, yeah. I know. If you'd, if you'd said CMOS sensor or CCD, um, all of our younger listeners would, would know what would you're talking known. about. Yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to update that one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so macula is basically just talking about the centre part of that. Right, okay. Mm. And... I mean, this sort of degeneration, is it something that happens over a long period of time or is it something that happens very quickly? There's a couple of different types of macular degeneration. So there's a type that the um, the simple term for it is dry macular degeneration mm-hmm. and that's a very slowly progressing condition. We can also get one that's called wet macular degeneration and in that one you actually get blood vessels growing into the macula and bleeding and that can cause vision loss very mm-hmm. quickly. Okay. And what do we do about it? It's, that's a very interesting question because it used to be that there was nothing that could be done. So it used to be if someone came in and we diagnosed macular degeneration, it was a, sorry about your vision, there's not much we can do. There's now a lot of treatments that are coming out. So the most innovative treatment is for wet macular degeneration and it's an injection that's called an anti-VEGF injection. Mm-hmm. So it's an anti-vascular endothelial growth factor. And basically the injection goes into the eye and it stops those blood vessels from growing. So it stops the bleeding from happening. And that's been fantastic. It's actually a paper came out a couple of weeks ago showing that it's actually almost halved the, the risk of blindness from this wet AMD into so, the country. And presumably with that you have to catch it very early. And what, what about if it's sort of gone a little way down the track? Can you reverse it or is that, that too hard? No, so there are some sort of, sometimes there's things that can help. So with the injections, they sometimes will help to re- restore a little bit of the vision. Mm. But you're right, it's a matter of catching it early. Mm. Now, I've got to ask you a question about the eye because, I mean, yeah, I wanted to do opt- optometry when I was younger, so it's cool stuff. <laughs> is wh- why, How is it that we have this blind spot in our eye where our optic nerve connects but we can't perceive it. 
Mm. Or, or we we can trick our eye so mm-hmm. that we can perceive it. But why is how do we do that? How do how do we trick our our brain or whatever into not perceiving this blind spot in both of our eyes? Yeah, it's a, um, very so exactly. The blind spot is where the optic nerve connects to the eye. Part of the reason that we don't normally see it is because we have two eyes open at once. So mm-hmm. our blind spots are in different spots, and then obviously we don't notice it then. But you'll notice even if you close one eye, you still don't see that blind mm. spot. Basically, it's just the brain tricking you. The brain is able just to fill in the gaps of, of what it should be in that area, which is quite amazing yeah. sort of technique. Yeah. Have, have you ever wondered, like, I often thought, given given that, you know, that's something that always freaked me out. Mm. You know, if you put a, a cross on a piece of paper, you can find it if you close one of your eyes quite, yeah. quite readily. But car accidents and so forth we see, do, do you think a portion of those are due to these sorts of optical effects where a brain is actually just filling in information? They have done a lot of research in, into vision and one of the main areas with vision and driving is glaucoma. Mm. So glaucoma is another eye disease where you lose your peripheral vision. And what they actually find is that people are very, very good at adapting around these sorts of things. So doesn't seem to be the blind spot causing any problems with accidents and things like that, but obviously... If you have a new eye disease and you right. lose some vision, that's when it's dangerous. Yeah. Now, the other personal question I have for you is yes. ophthalmoscope. Is this just a microscope side-on that optometrists like to give a big name to? <laughs> oh, the, the ophthalmoscope is <laughs> good because we can pick it up. It's really nice and small. <laughs> Much better than a microscope. But what, what does it do? I mean, how is it different mm. to a, a normal microscope? So it's basically, it, it is, yeah, pretty much a microscope. So it's a, um, for those of you who haven't had your eyes tested before, an ophthalmoscope is a little metal piece of equipment that we will pick up in our hand to look in the back of your eye. And it's actually got a number of lenses inside the ophthalmoscope, mm-hmm. so it is working almost like a microscope. Um, it gives us fantastic views of the back of the eye. Yeah, and these days you can map all sorts of stuff. I mean, you can map the the how flat the surface of the eye is, all this sort of stuff, right? Mm. And why isn't laser surgery sort of used just across the board? I mean, why is there some contention as to, you know, the use of these sorts of techniques to stop people wearing glasses and so forth? Yeah, so, so laser, the, 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 I think one of the important things to know with laser is that we talk about laser surgery in a different way. So there's laser for all different parts of your eye. So mm-hmm. we can laser the back, we can laser different areas. But laser that most people talk about is what we call refractive surgery. So, yeah, getting rid of your glasses. Mm. The main thing is when someone has their eye lasered, it actually makes the cornea at the front of the eye thinner. Mm -hmm. And so the problem is if you have a thin cornea to start with, we don't have enough tissue to work with. That's that's the main reason, really. So when if you were considering getting laser surgery, you go and get your eyes measured, and they do a whole lot of measurements looking at how thin the cornea is, the curve of the cornea, all those sorts of measurements, and then they'll be able to tell you whether or not there's enough room for them to laser. Mm. Now, one of the things you said there, which I've heard, you know explained to students before, but I want to hear your version of it, mm. is that you can laser different parts of the eye yeah. how, do you, how do you do that Mm-mm. so lasering the front of the eye obviously is fairly straightforward it's just getting that t- top layer of tissue when you're lasering the back of the eye the surgeons actually have to point the laser through the pupil of mm. the eye so through the black hole that you see when you look at someone's eye and obviously that's a very very hard skill to develop mm. and we've got some amazing laser surgeons in australia mm. When they're lasering the back of the eye, it's normally for stopping bleeding, like I was talking about before. So when there's bleeding at the back of the eye, if we put laser spots around the outside, it actually burns the vessels and stops them bleeding. Wow. Super cool stuff. And I guess that's one of the great things about having lasers at all, all different wavelengths mm. now. We can, um, you know, some go straight through the cornea, some get absorbed by the cornea yeah. and so forth. So you can do all this kind of go. Look, yeah. we, we're going to have to... Um, I'm too excited. <laughs> <laughs> the girls are sitting here. They, for all the listeners, me. Dr. Shane is nearly wetting his hand. Yeah, <laughs> he's so excited uh, about 
excited about the questions he's been able to ask This today. is great stuff. I've been trying to work this stuff out for years. Come on, you know. Um, as an optical physicist, I feel a bit ashamed that I didn't know the answer to some of these questions. We're going to play a track and we'll be back and Lauren's going to tell us a bit about the Bionic Eye Project, which is the other cool thing she's working on at the moment. So uh, here's some music for you, folks. Three. Triple. Uh, you are listening to 3 Triple It's Dr. Lauren's last few minutes of the show, but we're going to do a little bit of news before we get to that. Dr. Linden, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Oh, well, I actually just wanted to give a, a little bit of a shout-out today. It's Father's Day. Happy mm-hmm. Father's Day to all the fathers out there. So I thought it might be valuable to mention the father. Many people think of him as the father of global warming. Mm-hmm. So this is the person who first... Um, put together all of the global temperature records and then he compared those with the uh, carbon dioxide records and he saw that there was a correlation and he thought, oh, actually one of those is causing the other. So what year do you think, you've already seen this, Dr. Reynos, well, as what year do you think that happened? 1920, 30? It was 1938. 1938, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was yeah. Guy Calendar. So it's old news, right? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. super old news. Yeah. Super old news, but yeah. I just thought Father's Day yeah. might be worth bringing up again that he was the first person. He yeah, actually... I mean, I mean we, no, old news as in... we. Probably should have thought about well, it. Well, yeah, that's yeah. A while back, yeah. yeah. The, the correlation's been around for 80 years, and when he presented it at the Royal Society, they were like, yeah, okay, that does, I don't really believe you. And e- even he himself thought, even if we do as much as we can, we're only going to increase the temperature about, about a degree. And at that stage, people mm. were really worried more about ice ages than they were mm. about global warming. So, so they thing. said, yeah, he said, mm-hmm. this is going to be good to get rid of those deadly glaciers. Wow. So there you go, Guy mm. Calendar. You can follow him on Twitter. And he died because he, he was eaten by a polar bear, wasn't he? Is that- <laughs> no, I don't think Might so. Just, no? You sure? Nah. Anyway, could be just making that up. <laughs> you can follow him on Twitter. Yeah. He's um, still alive? No, he, he's not alive. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like, that, he's doing really well. I think <laughs> a friend of the show, uh, Ed Hawkins, he yes, may Ed. or may oh. not have a bit of a man crush on there that you go. and have a, a yeah. Twitter account was dedicated like to him. Or his, his second discovery was the elixir of life. And, yeah. you know. yeah. <laughs> Ed Hawkins is great. He, he's, he's the one who caused me to coin the term agnostic visual, which I put up every now and then on our mm-hmm. Facebook site. When I find an image or a picture or a diagram that doesn't require three paragraphs of explanation, mm-hmm. I call them agnostic visual, one that just sells itself, which mm-hmm. science almost never does, True. Mm-hmm. but Ed put the climate spiral up, and I thought that was one of the first really nice examples in the climate science of an agnostic visual. So, anyway, Absolutely. Dr. Lauren, um, Ray's, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's had enough. <laughs> all right, well, before I get all emotional, I thought I should talk about some news. So I Emotional? Emotional, yeah. I've, I've been, I've been, uh, Dr. Ray has bought a box of tissues in for me, <laughs> which, you know, probably sums up how well he knows me. Um, but I wanted to do a big shout out because it was the Eureka Awards this week, um, mm. announced up in Sydney. And, um, yeah, look, I just really want to give a shout out because I love these every year. It's just a bit of a summary of some of the amazing work going on in Australia. These are like the Oscars of Australian they science, are. aren't they? They are. I actually got an invitation Oscars. one year. And I was away and I was so upset. I almost flew back. <laughs> I was like, you get to wear a ball dress and there's a red carpet and it's science Oscars. Really? Yeah. yeah. No, you disagree? Well, no, no, I'm all, I'm all for a ball dress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone gets to wear one. Um, so huge shout out. Look, there were, there were 
too many prizes to um, read them all out now, but um, the Eureka Prize for Scientific Research went to some researchers from Swinburne um, that have been looking at uh, the wings of insects and have basically found that the physical structure of the wings actually makes them antibacterial. So they are actually these tiny little spikes called nanopillars that actually catch, stretch and rupture bacteria. Oh, yeah. So it's yeah, very cool. cool stuff. So they're actually using this to actually produce some nanotextured materials that will be antibacterial. So the idea being we can stop, you know, needing as many chemical solutions for mm. bacterial problems. The thing, thing I love about that is it doesn't matter what bacteria it is either. Mm. Um, it's, it's independent. So totally. you're not looking for chemical sites or anything. It's yep. a physical, I'm going to break this shit. That's it. That's yeah. it. And then you have the issue of, you know, resistance as well mm. because it's, you doesn't know, matter. it's just going to yeah. destroy them all. Yeah, resist so. all you like when mm-hmm. I try and rip you in half. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And then the Eureka Prize for the Innovative Use of Technology went to um, some researchers from the University of Melbourne that have developed a way to uh, cheaply produce medical grade oxygen so they're using it without electricity using water so um it's it's a really Mm. wonderful way it's called the frio 2 system uh uses running water to generate power that then compresses the air nitrogen's filtered out and then the oxygen is provided to the babies so very cool very cool stuff but i would definitely recommend you go have a look at the website Mm. because there's a lot of them amazing and just such cool stuff it's very cool stuff they also give prizes to uh, high school students as well don't they this eureka prize for the sleek geeks students and primary school students as well experiment or communicate something really well and i think this year they might have been might have been the second year that there was a citizen science yep. excellent pr- there excellent was prize there so was mm. yep, the yep. awards mm. are really championing all the great work that exactly. happens across the country exactly which yeah. which does kind of i guess lead into my little emotional yeah. bit at the end um it has been such an honor for five years to be in the studio and you know this is so much fun to be able to research into what the amazing work that goes on around the world and especially in australia um so i just really love to send a shout out to um all the scientists, all the researchers that are coming up with this amazing work that we get to talk about every week. Um, obviously, everyone that's listening, you know, it means so much to us. It really does. We know we've just had Radiothon and it's the one time of year we get to say it to everyone, but it is so amazing that people are here listening to us and sharing with our love of science. Um, and obviously to our wonderful team, um, you know, I'm going to be across the world, but I will still be hopefully chatting and calling in every now and again to talk to everyone. But um, it has just been an honour and a privilege and I can't thank you all enough. Mm. Well, it has been a pleasure having you in the studio, Lauren. And for those of you who, who wouldn't be aware of this out there listening, because she always sounds bubbly, but on occasion, especially after having a child, you know, just over a year ago and so forth, she'd come in and she was feeling like crap. Mm-hmm. But she'd still be bubbly, she'd still be smiley, she was always the person who brought to be the cheer into the studio. So thank you so much for all your work. Um, this isn't a goodbye, it's just a, you know, take a bit of a break. We'll have you on the phone or Skype or whatever, we'll do it. Yep. And in two or three years, we'll have you back in sounds the studio. Good. But Good luck with your adventures, and um, she's tearing up, folks. I am. Yeah, she's an opto- <laughs> she's, am. she's the eye specialist. Deal I know, with it. I know. I've got very good waterproof mascara. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, have, have a good trip, and um, we will let you settle in over there for a few months, but then we'll um, get you back on, and we'll see how things are going. Looking forward to and it. we'll learn more about that mystery university called Harvard. I know, I know. I can Cambridge. tell you some secrets. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. Thanks so much for listening today, folks. Uh, you have been listening to Einstein a go-go and we will be back again next week remember if you haven't subscribed to triple a you can still do it and be in the prizes for a couple more weeks remember science is everywhere have a great sunday and we'll chat again in seven days this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more 
Check out our website at rrr.org.au.